Hey guys, how's it going? Sunny D here. Thanks for tuning in to the YFYI podcast. The episode that you're about to listen to is another live storytime episode. This week we're studying the brand, the great, the iconic company, the McDonald's Corporation. And I'm reading from the book, Grinding It Out, The Making of McDonald's by Ray Kroc. One of my favorite books. I know you guys are going to enjoy it. Lots of really cool things, insights, lessons, just all kinds of information that you can only find out about when you hear it from the founder himself. So this is Grinding It Out, and this is our second part in this five-part series on the great company, the McDonald's Corporation. Hope you guys enjoy. Wherever you're tuning in from, good morning, good morning, good morning. It's time for story time. I'm Sunny D. I'm your host. Excited to be back. Excited to have another session with you. Um, Today is an exciting day for a lot of different reasons. Uh, One of those is because I got my pumpkin spice tea and honey here, which is the perfect way to start the morning. And that's not the only reason and this is story time that's another exciting reason that's another definitely an exciting thing Uh, but one of the things i would say like above all that above above having some tea above having some tea time above having some um, having my pumpkin spice tea the thing that i'm most excited about today is we are we are like 24 hours away a little bit maybe more than 24 hours away of opening up all of our salons, of being back in the salons. Uh, today, our team's going to be, you know, getting the salons ready for all of our guests. We're going to be in there prepping. I'm just making sure we've got everything that we need. You know, t- just tidying up the place since we've been gone. You know, for uh, two months, really, uh, two months as of uh, a couple days ago when we first closed the salons down. So we've been gone for a while from the salons, but we're super excuse me, super excited to be back, super excited to get back in the salons, super excited to, to see our guests, to get back in there and and love up on our guests and celebrate hair again. That's that's probably, you know, what we've all been missing the most is celebrating our guests, loving on our guests, celebrating hair, you know, since we've been all down and kind of down, but not out, but definitely down since the onset of the uh, corona situation that we've got going on and it's been it's been it's been a, a long windy ride but we are excited to get back so that's what i'm really pumped about uh, but right now we're here it's 9 a.m so if you're just tuning in welcome 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 it's time for story time and we're going to continue our journey so we went through this is episode number 32 Um, But this week we're covering a different company, a different brand, a different great story, a different, uh, a different great, great iconic brand, the brand McDonald's. Now, it doesn't matter where you sit when it comes to McDonald's. Maybe you're like, I love it. I love this place. Um, I'm loving it. Maybe that's your thing because, you know, that's their their uh, their tagline and that's what you've been loving it. But everybody knows um, of the brand. Everybody's had some kind of probably interaction experience. Um, with the brand and everybody probably has some um, they might they might have some kind of feeling about you know where they sit with the brand one thing I think it's going to be tough to argue um, is the success of the brand you know the McDonald's corporation as they as they refer to themselves um, is one of those iconic 
uh, once in a in a lifetime type of companies. Um, it's one of those iconic once in a lifetime um, stories. And we got into the beginning of the story yesterday with our, our buddy Ray Kroc who wrote this book that I'm reading from Grinding It Out, The Making of McDonald's by Ray Kroc. So we got into a little bit of his story yesterday and some of the, the rationale. One of the big takeaways I think from yesterday as I was reading through is it's never too late. You know, that was a big takeaway for me when I first read this book. I mean, this book came out, you know, 30 years ago. But the the thing about never too late, knowing that he didn't start the McDonald's franchise and, and the process until he was 52, 53, 54 years old, right? He doesn't meet the McDonald's brothers until that age. And that's when he starts. So he's got, a you know, 30 years of bouncing around career, career, career going from business to business to business and he doesn't get to the McDonald's point until 50 something 52 years old so if you're sitting over there and you're if you're under 50 right now and you're sitting over there wondering thinking maybe your time has passed did my time already come you know is it too late for me to try to do something I want you to keep that in mind you know, he started at 52 years old. He met the McDonald's brothers and saw their amazing operation. And he's like, I got to be a part of that. So that's where we're picking up on the story. And that was a little bit of the intro. But I want you to keep that in mind. Because when you look at it today and you look at the company where it's at today, and I shared some of the statistics with you guys yesterday, um, the company where it's at today and, you know, where it's going. I mean, their story is still being written as we speak. As we share, as I'm sharing these stories with you now, the McDonald's story is continuing to be written. It's continuing to be um, to be etched. So just an incredible story, and there's no arguing that. And so we're going to pick up in the second part here, uh, where we left off. Right, Ray was just talking to, um, just talking to Mac. Right, I think it was, it was uh, he was having that conversation with them, and he was, you know, he was talking, and then Dick McDonald is like. You know, talking about how much trouble it would be when Ray approaches them and says, "Hey, you guys need to franchise this. You need to, you need to take this like to the next level. You should open these McDonald's everywhere because not only will it help you, but it'll also help me. Because remember, at this point in the game, Ray is so, uh, is selling his business that he has. His small business is the multi mixer." milkshake makers right he's selling those and that's how he gets turned on to the mcdonald's brothers in the first place because he's like yeah there's this one little hamburger stand that's selling 15 cent hamburgers out in san bernardino california that keeps buying up these mixers like what's the deal so really when he goes out there he's going out there to investigate and see like what's happening like what's all the what's all the fuss about and why are these why are these guys with this one little hamburger stand buying so many of my multi-mixers? And when he gets out there and he stands in that parking lot for a second, he realizes real quick what's going on. He's like, they not only have, you know, they've got eight mixers running at one time, but they've got this seamless operation where people are lining up and they're standing there getting their food, um, loving their food. Then he starts, you know, doing some market research. Right, and this is before he even meets Mac and Dick McDonald. He does the market research by asking the people in the parking lot, like, "What do you guys, like, how often do you guys come here?" 
And the people are like every day, you know, and, and you know, every chance I get or I actually route my my trip and route my errands around this place to come here and enjoy these 15 cent hamburgers and the fries, the process of the fries, unbelievable. The process um, that he takes, you know, that they take the steps that they take to ensure that those fries are the best, the best. I mean, it's hard to find a fry that is better still to this day uh, than the McDonald's fries. So then he approaches them and he's like, hey, you guys need to take this store and, and open it everywhere. And, you know, they're just not feeling it. They live up on, on the hill in a house. They can overlook the restaurant. They're like, you see that hill right there? That house right there? That's us. We can see our restaurant. It's a nice, easy, you know, walk to work or small, you know, short commute to work. We're happy. We're satisfied. We're, you know, trying to kind of just enjoy life at this point. And they have no appetite for doing what Ray is suggesting, which is expanding opening more stores, opening more restaurants, and taking this to uh, to another level. And so with that, you know, when Dick is telling, you know, Ray, man, that's going to be a lot of trouble, you know, who would we get to open them for us? And, you know, Ray says, you know, I sat there feeling a sense of certitude begin to envelop me. Then I leaned forward and said, well, what about me, right? What about me? Um, so that was a bold statement right there. You know, because he's thinking, he sees the potential not only to sell more, you know, milkshake mixers, these multi-mixers, but he sees the potential in the whole operation. Um, so that's where we're picking up on the story. Here we go. So, when I flew back to Chicago that fateful day in 1954, I had a freshly signed contract with the McDonald's brothers in my briefcase. I was a battle-scarred veteran of the business wars but I was still eager to go into action. I was 52 years old. I had diabetes and incipient arthritis. I had lost my gallbladder and most of my thyroid gland in earlier campaigns, but I was convinced that the best was ahead of me. So that just speaks right there to the mindset, you guys, the mindset of uh, Ray Kroc. You know, mindset is something that you will forge over time Mindset is something that you can also continually develop over time. It's one of those muscles. It's not like when you're, you know, as you age and you lose, you do lose, I guess, maybe a little bit of, of your mind, your brain. Um, but as you age, you know, and your, your quad strength isn't what it used to be, your, you know, maybe your biceps aren't what they used to be, uh, but your mind and your head, you can keep your mind, you can keep sharpening it. And you don't necessarily have to worry about sprain and getting a sprain or going to the gym or lifting too much weight or, you know, but your mind, you can keep on sharpening it. So that just speaks to his mindset, you know, knowing, and he's got these physical things going on. He's 52 years old. He's had a lot of businesses crash and burn, but his mindset to be able to, you know, have that going and keep sharpening that, that's going to be a huge thing for anybody that's wanting to be successful in anything. Back to the story. So he says, but I was convinced that the best was ahead of me. I was still green and growing, and I was flying along at an altitude slightly higher than the plane. It was bright and sunny up there above the clouds. You could see nothing but clear skies and endless acres of billowy hummocks all the way from the Colorado River to Lake Michigan. But everything turned gray and threatening as we began our descent into Chicago. 
Perhaps I should have taken that as an omen. My thoughts, however, as we glided through the churning blackness, were on those hidden streets and alleys below where I had grown up along with the century. I was born in Oak Park, just west of Chicago city limits in 1902. My father, Louis Kroc, was a Western Union man. He had gone to work for the company when he was 12 years old and slowly but steadily worked his way up. He had left school in the eighth grade and he was determined that I would finish high school. I was the wrong kid for that. My brother Bob, who was born five years after me, and my sister Lorraine, who came along three years after him, were much more inclined to studies. In fact, Bob became a professor, a medical researcher, and we had almost nothing in common, he and I. For many years, we found it difficult even to talk to each other. My mother Rose was a loving soul. She ran a neat, well-organized house but she did not carry cleanliness to the extremes her mother did. I will never forget my grandmother's kitchen. The floor was covered with newspapers all week long. Then on Saturday, the newspapers would be taken up and the floor, which was already as clean as a nun's cowl, would be scrubbed vigorously with steaming hot soapy water. After it was rinsed and dried, back down would go a fresh covering of newspapers to protect it in the week ahead. That was the old way grandma had had brought from Bohemia when she was not about to change. My mother gave piano lessons to bring in extra money and she expected me to help with the housework. I didn't mind. In fact, I prided, on, I prided myself on being able to sweep and clean and make beds as well as anyone. Children were to be seen but not heard in adult company in those days, but I never felt left out. For example, my father belonged to a singing group that often met in our house. My brother and I had to stay upstairs and amuse ourselves while my mother played the piano and the men sang. As soon as the music stopped below, Bob and I would drop whatever game we were playing and rush back to the sewing room, which was right above the kitchen. I would pull the warm air grate out of the floor. That was before we had central heating and floor registers were used to let heated air rise to the upper rooms. My mother would put a dish of whatever refreshments she was serving on a tray that my father had affixed to an old broom handle. Then she would hoist it up to us. It was a delightful feeling of adventure, because my mother pretended to be sneaking the food away without letting the other adults know. I was never much of a reader when I was a boy. Books bored me. I liked action. But I spent a lot of time thinking about things. I'd imagine all kinds of situations and how I would handle them. What are you doing, Raymond? My mother would ask. Nothing, just thinking. Daydreaming, you mean, she'd say. Danny Dreamer is at it again. They called me Danny Dreamer a lot, even later when I was in high school and would come home all excited about some scheme I thought up. I never considered my dreams wasted energy. They were invariably linked to some form of action. When I dreamed about having a lemonade stand, for example, it wasn't long before I set up a lemonade stand. I worked hard at it, and I sold a lot of lemonade. I worked at a grocery store one summer when I was still in grammar school. I worked at my uncle's drugstore. I worked in a tiny music store I'd started with two friends. I worked at something whenever possible. Work is the meat in the hamburger of life. There is an old saying that all work and no play makes Jack a dull boy. 
I never believed it because for me, work was play. I got as much pleasure out of it as I did from playing baseball. Baseball was truly the national pastime in those days, of course, and our neighborhood games in the alley behind my house were grand contests. My father was a baseball buff too, and he began taking me to see the Chicago Cubs play the old West Side ballpark in the old West Side ballpark when I was seven years old. I saw plenty of double plays pulled off by the Cubs' famous tinker to Evers to chance combination. The Cubs were contenders then, and I knew all the statistics about every player down to his shoe size. My father belonged to the same lodge as Joe Tinker, and that gave me the upper hand over other kids in our frequent arguments about baseball players, especially when it came to the Cubs. I had to know more about it, of course, because my old man knew Joe Tinker personally. What sweet strife those alley altercations were, and how fiercely we played the game. With a garbage can lid for a home base, a well-chewed bat pocked from hitting stones for batting practice, and a ball bandaged in black friction tape. <laughs> How agonizing it was, though, when my mother would step into the back porch, onto the back porch, and call, Raymond, it's time to come in and practice. The other guys would mimic her voice and inflection jeeringly as the chesty expert on the Cubs shouted resentfully, I'm coming, and shuffled off to submit to his mother's piano instructions. I took to piano naturally. My facility at the keyboard pleased my mother, and I'm still thankful to her for those hours of disciplined practice, although at the time I often thought her demands were excessive. I became proficient enough to acquire a minor reputation in the neighborhood and to prompt the choir master of the Harvard Congregational Church to recruit me to play the organ for his practice sessions, a slight lapse of judgment on his part. I was willing and able, but the stately chords of the hymns began to oppress me. I fidgeted on the bench of the old pump organ through the entire second half of the evening. How those people managed to put up with all the interruptions, the lecturing of the choir master, and his repetition of the same passages over and over again. I could not understand. Moreover, the music itself was so saccharine and slow that I was suffocating up there in the organ loft. When he concluded the last hymn of that seemingly interminable session and said, that's it, ladies and gentlemen, good night, I reacted spontaneously by playing the old vaudeville tune tag, shave and a haircut, two bits. Naturally, the choir master was scandalized. He never reprimanded me for that little breach of decorum, but he never asked me to play the organ again either. <laughs> so that's just being a, I guess, you know, being a young Ray, learning how to play the piano, summertime, you know, playing uh, baseball. But, you know, a couple things, a couple takeaways that I had just kind of reading through that, you know, thinking about how you were were a kid, there's a lot of signs in there. Whether it be, you know, him being young, uh, doing a lemonade stand. You know, think about it. A lot of those signs, right, when you look back, you can always connect the dots and you can see like, you know, selling candy. I remember selling candy in school, um, selling cigarettes at middle school. You know, always trying to sell something, always trying to make a nickel, always trying to, you know, think of something or plotting or scheming. Those kind of things come naturally when 
um, you have some of that entrepreneurial, I guess you could say, DNA and running through your veins, and you can't you can't suppress it. You know, so those were some of the early signs uh, when you think of a, a young Ray Kroc and some of the things that were happening um, going on in his mind and what was what was going on in his head during his adolescent times. Back to the story. My sophomore year in high school passed like a funeral. I began to feel about school the way I felt earlier about the Boy Scouts. It was simply too slow for me. I'd been eager to become a Boy Scout and I enjoyed it for a while. They made me the, the bugler, but a bugle is a very limited instrument and I found myself doing the same things over and over in meetings. It was small potatoes. I wasn't progressing, so I said to hell with it. School was the same, full of aggravations and little progress. The only thing I really enjoyed about school was debating. Here was an activity I could get my teeth into figuratively, of course, but I would not have hesitated to bite a debate opponent if it would have advanced my argument. I loved being the center of attention, persuading the audience that my side was right. One debate that I remember in particular was on the question, should smoking be abolished? As happened more often than not, I was on the side of the underdogs, trying to defend smoking. It was a very spirited exchange, but my opponents made the mistake of painting the demon tobacco too black, too vile, too evil to be countenanced by a sane society. Rhetoric is fine as long as it maintains some contact with reality. So I attacked their excesses by telling very simply, very simply the story of my great-grandfather and his beloved pipe. Grandpa Fossey, we called him, which means Grandpa Beard. I told of the hardships he'd undergone in Bohemia and how he had made his way to the United States. I related in pithy detail how he had built a home for his family with the sweat of his brow. Now he had little time left in life and few pleasures beyond throwing a stick for his little dog to fetch and looking into the swirls of smoke from his ancient pipe to recall scenes from happier days. Who among you, I asked, would deprive that white-bearded old man one of, the, of, the, of one of his last comforts on earth, his beloved pipe? I was delighted to know that there were tears in the eyes of some of the girls in the auditorium as I finished. I wish my father could have heard that applause. It might have made up for some of his disappointment in my lack of scholastic, scholastic interest. As school ended that spring, the United States entered World War I. I took a job selling coffee beans and novelties door to door. I was confident I could make my way in the world and saw no reason to return to school. Besides, the war effort was more important. Everyone was singing over there, over there, over there. And that's where I wanted to be. My parents objected strenuously, but I finally talked them into letting me join up as a Red Cross ambulance driver. I had to lie about my age, of course, but even my grandmother could accept that. And my company, which assembled in Connecticut for training, was another fellow who had lied about his age to get in. He was regarded as a strange duck because whenever we had time off and went out on the town to chase girls he stayed in camp drawing pictures his name 
was Walt Disney. Pretty cool, right? So I'm going to jump back in here for a second. So he's like sophomore. He's done with school. You know, I know a lot of you guys out there. I know me. I was done with school before it even started. Um, but I got, you know, muscled through it. And I also got pushed through it. Thank, you know, thankful to some mentors, some key mentors. My karate teacher being a huge one in my life. For Without him, I would have never even graduated. But at that time, that time period, he leaves. He's like, you know what? I'm done with school. I'm going to go, you know, I want to get involved. The World War One had broken out. Um, so he lies about his age, ends up in, you know, getting into the Red Cross as an ambulance driver. And then he's in Connecticut. And, you know, he's got one guy in his unit. It's Walt Disney. And everyone's looking at him like, you know, why aren't you coming out with us? And Walt is on a whole nother business. You know, he's got a whole nother mission going on. So he's staying in his room and he's drawing pictures. So that's kind of cool. Ray Kroc, founder, creator, you know, founder of uh, McDonald's when it, you know, took it to the franchise that it is today. You got Walt Disney, same time period, you know, in that same unit, you know, crossing paths um, during this time. Back to the story. The armistice was signed just before I was to get on the boat to ship out to France. So I went marching back home to Chicago wondering what to do next. My parents talked me into trying school again, but I lasted only one semester. Algebra had not improved in my absence. <laughs> Funny. I wanted to be out selling and playing the piano for money, and that's what I did. I got a territory selling ribbon novelties, and I took to it like a duck takes the water. I've, I'd have a sample room set up in whatever hotel I was staying in, and I'd learn what each buyer's taste was and sell to it. No self-respecting pitcher throws the same way to every batter, and no self-respecting salesman makes the same pitch to every client. In 1919, anyone making $25 or $30 a week was doing well, and it wasn't long before, on good weeks with a lot of musical jobs, I was making more money than my father. I was a regular chic at 17, cocky and probably annoying to be around. Rudolph Valentino was driving the girls wild then, and I modeled myself after him. I parted my rather wiry hair in the middle and plastered pomade on it to get that slick back patent leather look. I bought sharp clothes and smoked melacrino cork-tipped Turkish cigarettes when I went out on dates. After my date and I were seated, I would produce my box of imported cigarettes with a flare and place it on the table to show how sophisticated I was. This was just a passing phase, but it still embarrasses me to recall it because there's nothing I dislike more than phony sophistication. In fact, I take a kind of perverse pleasure in the memory of the night most of the chic was shocked out of me. <laughs> a musician named Herbie Mintz, who always knew where work was to be found, confided to me that he knew a nightclub that was looking for a piano player with my kind of style. It was located way down in Calmette City, but it paid well above the going rates. I jumped at it. Getting from Oak Park on the west side 
to the far southeast suburb was a major undertaking. I rode several different buses and trains, but somehow I made it on time for the 9 p.m. opening. The place turned out to be a bordello. The downstairs cabaret where we played was decorated in the most god-awful, garish, gay 90s plush and guilt you could imagine. It was presided over by a madam who must have weighed 200 pounds. I have never seen such a getup as she wore. Her hair and makeup were as flamboyant as the decor of the place, and she reeked of cheap perfume. I got plenty of good whiffs of it as she hung over me and sang to my accompaniment. I can still see her yellow pearls bouncing on that heavy bosom, those rings flashing on her pudgy fingers as she belted out songs in her gravelly voice. Between sets, when she got a lull in directing traffic to the bedrooms upstairs, Big Mama came over to the piano and warmed up to me. Where do you live, honey? She asked. I had all I could to do to keep my voice from quavering. As I told her, I came from Oak Park. Well now, that's not too far for you to travel late night. Well now, she says, <laughs> that's too far for you to travel late at night. Tonight, you stay here. I was afraid to say no and I squirmed uneasily on the piano bench the rest of the evening, watching her out of the corner of my eye and hoping she'd keep her distance. The customers were a pretty hard and rowdy lot, so I had no reassurance there. Just before the final set, I sidled over to the bartender and called him aside. I strove mightily to act casual and keep my voice steady. Listen, we have only one more set to play, and I've got a long ride home. I don't want to hang around, I said, so how about paying me off right now? Without a word, poker-faced, but knowing, he reached under the bar and handed me my money. I hurried over to the men's room where I stuffed the cash into my sock. I didn't trust anybody in that place. After the set, while the other guys in the band were still putting away their instruments, I was running down the street, putting as much distance as possible between me and that 200-pound madam. I never went back. My selling job with the ribbon novelty outfit began to hit its limits before long. It was interesting, but I could see that I was not cut out for a career of peddling rosebuds for farm wives to sew on garters and bed cushions. So I gave it up in the summer of 1919 and got a job playing in a band at Paw Paw Lake, Michigan. That was a genuine taste of the era. We were really with it in our striped blazers and straw boaters. Talk about your flaming youth and Charleston crazed kids. Wow. I played in a dime a dance pavilion called the Edgewater. The lake was a very popular summer resort in those days and we used to draw people from the hotels all around. Late in the afternoon our whole band would get aboard one of the ferry boats that plied the lake and we would steam along the shoreline playing frenetically. One of our boys would get up in the bow with a megaphone and call out, Dancing tonight at the Edgewater. Don't miss out on the fun. 
Among the regular crowd at the lake were two sisters named Ethel and Maybelle Fleming. They came from Melrose Park, Illinois, and they helped during the summer at a hotel their parents owned directly across the lake from the Edgewater. Their father was an engineer in Chicago and was an infrequent visitor at the lake. Their mother ran the hotel, did all the cooking and much of the housekeeping. She was a remarkably energetic woman. The sisters would canoe over to the pavilion in the evenings and hang around with our crowd. After the dancing was finished, we'd all go out for hamburgers or have wiener roasts or go canoeing in the moonlight. Ethel and I were an item in the group almost from the start. By the time the summer was over, we were getting very interested in each other. My next job was in Chicago's financial district as a board marker on the New York curb as the market that became known or that became the American Stock Exchange used to be called. The New York curb, that's something, something kind of new. Didn't know about that. <clears throat> My employer was a firm named Wooster Thomas. A very substantial sound to that. I thought I thought my job was to read the ticker tape and translate the symbols from it into prices that I posted on the backboard on the blackboard for the scrutiny of the gentleman who frequented our office. I later learned that the impressive sounding name fronted a bucket shop operation that was selling watered stock all over the place. Early in 1920, my father was promoted to a management position in ADT, a subsidiary of Western Union, and was transferred to New York. I was very reluctant to leave Ethel. We were talking about getting married as soon as possible, but my mother insisted that I move east with them. I was able to get a job with the Wooster Thomas office in New York. This was in the cashier's cage, however, and I didn't like it nearly as the more active work of marking up boards. As it turned out, I didn't have to worry about it much more than a year. One day, when I went to work, the office was boarded up and the sheriff had posted a notice that they'd gone bankrupt. That hurt. <laughs> they owed me a week's pay plus vacation time. I had been planning to take my time off the following week and go to Chicago to visit Ethel. Now I could see no reason for waiting, so I left the next day. My mother was upset when I told her I was leaving and that I didn't want to come back, but there wasn't much she could do about it. She hated New York herself. After I left, she worked on my father until he finally gave up his promotion and moved back to Chicago. In 1922, Ethel and I decided we waited long enough. I was still a minor, but I was going to be married come hell or high water. When I told my father about it, he got an adamant glint in his eye and said, Impossible. Sir, I said, Raymond, that is not, <clears throat> that it is not possible for you to get married. You must first have a steady job. And I don't mean working as an errand boy or a bellhop in a hotel. I mean something substantial. A few days later, I went to work selling Lily Brand paper cups. I don't know what appealed to me so much about paper cups 
Perhaps it was mostly because they were so innovative and upbeat. <laughs> but I sensed from the outset that paper cups were part of the way America was headed. I guess my father must have agreed. At least he raised no further objections, and Ethel and I were married. All right, so we're coming to a close there. So as we uh, finish up that section, um, you're you're learning about the young, the young Ray Kroc, the uh, McDonald's, as we know it today, the McDonald's founder. Um, I'm reading from Grinding It Out, the making of McDonald's, and this is by Ray Kroc. So that's some of his. You know his adolescent times, um, just growing up. You know, growing up in Chicago, hustling, moving from job to job. You know, so for some of you guys that are out there, you're thinking, yeah, you know, maybe you saw some parallels in some of your own journey. I know I did. Um, as I was reading, just kind of getting reminded of some of those things. You know, and as we go through, um, we go through life. You know, no one would ever thought. You know, here this kid is. You know. Flunking basically out of school, dropping out of school, uh, turns it all around. I mean, and at 52, yeah, 52 years old, when he approaches the McDonald's brothers and has the idea, um, a lot's happened um, in that period. And that's the same way it's going to be for us. You know, a lot of different things are going to happen. There's going to be a long run up. You know, so if you're still looking, right, maybe you're standing at the bus stop and you're wondering, like, what's going on is... Um, is that train ever going to come? Is that bus ever going to come? Or you're wondering, you know, you might be wondering, did I miss it? Did I miss the bus? Did I miss the train? Um, just know that it doesn't matter um, where you're at right now because where you're at right now is not where you're going to stay. Where you're at right now is it's a temporary position. And that's a big thing. And I don't know if, you know, if, if Ray was thinking that at the time. I don't know if he was, um, if he was thinking you know, that he was going to become what he became. You know, I definitely don't think he thought, you know, he was going to meet the McDonald's brothers or the McDonald brothers in when he's 52 years old in San Bernardino, California, and then take their restaurant and turn it to the most successful small business arguably um, ever. I definitely don't think he thought that. But I do think that he thought he probably thought that he was meant to do something special. And I really feel that that's enough. So if you're wondering right now, if you're like standing at the bus stop and you're wondering like if you missed the bus to success university or if you missed the bus to, you know, to uh, success city, you didn't miss the bus. You know, everybody's timing is going to be a little different. You know, I meet people as a as an educator, you know, working in a lot of the Paul Mitchell schools. I met students that graduated high school. We're like, I want to do hair. And then they, they join and they're like 18, 19 years old. I was older than that. You know, I was a, an elder in my class when I started. Everybody's journey is a little bit different. I mean, Ray didn't start till he was 52 years old. And I say start, meaning, you know, the McDonald's part of his journey. Uh, but, I mean, he started... a hell of a lot earlier as you can see um, from the earliest you know when he's he's selling lemonade right lemonade stand um, so no matter where you're at right now it, it's not where you're going to end up and so that's the big takeaway hopefully you guys are um, catching a little bit of that and thinking about what your journey looks like and you keep on forging 
And sometimes it's like water, you know, it kind of creeps one way, creeps the other way. Sometimes you have to go with the flow, literally, um, because you're not necessarily, um, you're not necessarily uh, going to be 100% accurate on every single target. But he just kept trying different things, trying different things, trying different things. Um, the key, especially for him, was, you know, a lot of things didn't work out, but he wasn't afraid to try again. And if you, you know, you know, you fail, you try, try again, the old adage, it's so true. You know, there's a lot of times where you're going to go bust, shit's going to hit the fan, you're going to be like, oh man, there's not even going to be a fan, you know, sometimes, or the fan's going to hit you. You don't even have to worry about hitting it. But in all those things and all those um, different, you know, failures, it may have looked like failures, but he was stumbling slowly, slowly, and slowly towards success. So that's a little bit of his um, of his youth growing up. We're going to get into some of his earlier days, um, his twenties. You're going to hear about some of his great um, great mistakes as he chartered his way. You know, he's thirty years, thirty years in the game before he meets the McDonald's brothers in San Bernardino. Bernardino. So thirty years of trying different things um, and some things not panning out. Next thing, next thing, next thing, next thing. Uh, but he's going to keep going. So we're going to have a lot of fun learning about him. Um, so we'll be back uh, tomorrow morning. We'll be back for another episode of Storytime as we uh, continue the journey. I'm reading from the book Grinding It Out. Um, this, this by Ray Kroc, The Making of McDonald's. And continue to study this brand. And a lot of the, the takeaways that I got from this book, which I'm hoping that you'll get too, are going to be those of resilience are going to be those of keep trying different things of going to be those wherever you start is definitely not where you're going to end up and he is one of the great examples of what that looks like so hope you guys enjoyed this episode thanks for tuning in uh, we'll be back tomorrow 9 a.m uh, as we continue the study of mcdonald's the great company uh, built by ray Kroc, and continue reading from the book grinding it out by ray Kroc, um, one of my one of my favorites and so if you're coming back tomorrow morning, bring a friend. Um, like I said, we are opening up our salons tomorrow. So we'll see if we stay at the 9 a.m. time. We may shift it. We may shift to 8 a.m. We'll see how it goes. Um, but yeah, we're opening our salons up tomorrow. And we're our team's going in today to get things ready. Um, but super excited about that. Um, but I want to keep story time going because I've gotten so much feedback from you guys. And uh, you know, last week when we were going through the Ritz-Carlton Hotel Company, um, already this week, you know, just studying uh, the McDonald's Corporation. Um, so I want to keep story time going as long as it uh, continues to, you know, be fun for me and bring you guys value. I'm all in. Um, so we'll be coming back to Instagram live. We'll come back to the Facebook pages live. Um, if you're listening to this on the podcast, all the previous episodes you can also listen to. If you go to yfyipodcast.com. You can check out all the past episodes if you want to take me on the go. Or maybe you're tuning in on Twitter, live broadcast there. Thanks for listening. Uh, wherever you're listening or watching from, thanks for being here, guys. Um, that concludes our story time for today, and we'll be back tomorrow morning. You guys have a great day. Hey guys, Sunny D here again. Hope you guys enjoyed that episode. Uh, Ray Kroc, he was a wild guy. 
You know, he was reminds me a lot of myself as a kid, just dreaming, you know, Danny the dreamer, always plotting, always scheming, always thinking of ways to, you know, to get your hustle on, to make some money. And that's just part of the entrepreneurial spirit. It's part of the entrepreneurial bloodline. It's one of those things that if you look back, you can kind of find those traces in your past, in your youth. Uh, pretty incredible. I'm excited for the next episode. I'm excited to continue to um, introduce you guys to Ray Kroc. There's not a whole lot of information out there about him, but this is one of the great books, Grinding It Out, The Making of McDonald's by Ray Kroc. If you haven't read it, um, definitely I would I would advise if you're a business owner thinking about going into business, um, really just want to be inspired by an iconic legend and a story. This is a great book that you should uh, definitely take a look at. Thanks again for being here, guys. Hopefully, if you can, leave a rating, leave a review. It'll help the podcast get discovered. If you're listening to this, maybe you'll join us for a live story time. We're coming um, 9 a.m. Monday through Friday. Uh, We may switch it up a little bit. We'll see how it goes. Um, Our salons are opening back up tomorrow, so I'm pretty excited about that. So we'll see how this schedule works out, but we're going to keep story time going. I'm having a lot of fun doing it, and I hope you guys are having a lot of fun listening. So until the next episode, uh, take it easy for now and keep on grinding it out in your own way. And thanks again for listening to the YFY podcast. And remember, this is the place you come to learn how to build your business right once or else you will be doomed to have to build it again. Thanks for listening, guys, and I'll talk to you soon.